Join Dr. Anthony Fauci and your colleagues in respiratory medicine at the ATS 2021 International Conference starting May 14th. Register today at conference.thoracic.org. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Michael Lanspa. Thank you for joining us in our Out of the Blue podcast. Today, we're going to discuss an article by Drs. Avari and Hebert and colleagues entitled Quantitative Assessment of Viral Dispersion Associated with Respiratory Support Devices in a Simulated Critical Care Environment. I'm joined today by one of the senior authors of the study, Dr. Hamza Baresh, a postdoctoral fellow at Sunnybrook Translational Research Group for the Emerging Respiratory Viruses at the University of Toronto. Welcome and thank you for joining. Thank you for having me. Early on in the COVID-19 pandemic, there was a considerable dilemma about how we should manage these patients. There was a lot of fear about viral transmission when we were managing patients with non-invasive oxygen support. How did you and your group get involved with this particular question? So uh, um, Dr. Samira Mubarak and Dr. Uh, Robert Fowler, two other senior authors of the study, were a part of uh, a WHO working group looking at the safety of high flow nasal oxygen in the context of COVID-19 infection. Uh, so like you mentioned, there was a lot of concern regarding the safety of healthcare workers, especially in the ICUs. So we started the conversation uh, with uh, Dr. Caroline Duchesne, who holds the Canada Research Chair in Bioaerosols, and we connected with the Sunnybrook Canadian Simulation Center. They were uh, obviously keen, and that's how it all started. Uh, this is one of the reasons I'm really interested in bioaerosols. It's... Uh, how multidisciplinary it is. So we got clinicians, macrobiologists, engineer, and respiratory therapists all coming together with different expertise to create a project to respond to a pressing problem. So it was quite incredible to see that happen and to be a part of it. You know, I think that multidisciplinary aspect was probably very useful when it comes to designing the experiment. You know, you you group designed a simulated ICU room, ICU room, and a simulated patient to test out the bioaerosol dispersion. Can you tell us a little bit about the choices that you and your group made in designing the room and the mannequin? Uh, yes, absolutely. So, so the room was a, a behavioral assessment room. So with the help uh, of uh, HVAC technician, uh, we created the exact same condition as an isolation room uh, with negative pressure and the right airflow to simulate a real patient room in, uh, in ICU. So we bought uh, in a real patient bed with the sheets and everything. Uh, the mannequin was not designed for the study per se. It was a part of the simulation center for training purposes. So we used it to mimic a spontaneously breathing patient with mild to moderate respiratory distress. And we used connector that serves as the tracheobronchial tree. We uh, clamped the uh, esophagus to prevent system leaks. So the mannequin had uh, closely replicated the anatomy of a male human head with structures like the trachea, larynx, oropharynx, the mouth and the nose. So anything that may contribute to the flow uh, pattern. We used a ventilator supplying air to the lung reservoir back to simulate the patient uh, breathing patterns. Then we used a nebulizer 
to generate bacteriophages from the lung reservoir back to mimic dispersion from the lower respiratory tract to the environment. I thought it was really clever how you uh, used a ventilator to uh, simulate the, the artificial lung. What are some of the limitations though? I mean, like I imagine, you know, the temperature or perhaps, you know, the, uh, the lack of mucus or some of these things might uh, affect the, the fidelity of the model. What other limitations uh, existed? Yeah, absolutely. This is a very good point. Uh, uh, unfortunately, the model lacks the, like any fluids or mucus in the patient simulator airway, which in real life plays a role in viral dispersion properties. Uh, but these, these factors are kind of, for obvious reason, hard to, to put uh, into uh, the model. So this was stated as a limitation of the study. However, the results on infectivity were not affected by this because infectious viral particles, were, like we were able to, uh, to calculate the concentrations of the viral particles, even though uh, those limitations were present. So, you know, I, I'm curious how we should interpret your study compared to um, others, because there's several studies that have looked at potential transmission of various devices, uh, like high flow or even just, you know, singing versus coughing. But your study is fairly novel in that you chose a bacteriophage as a tracer rather than just looking at simple water droplets or smoke particles. Why did you choose to study this virus as opposed to uh, just looking at simple aerosols? Well, with non-viral particles, like you just mentioned, like the smoke or respiratory droplets or water, for example, we get the dispersion aspect of aerosols, but not their infectivity. So in, in our case, the infectivity part was important to us to show that not only that aerosols can travel in the room, but they are still infectious. So that was like the, the novelty of this work is, is to have that infectivity aspect. And so how did you actually measure dispersal and infectivity? We used uh, air sampling cassettes with filters uh, that were connected to pumps uh, placed in different strategic locations in the room, uh, locations where healthcare workers in real life uh, would be placed uh, while giving care to a patient, like just below the head, uh, just below the bed, uh, like a little bit further at the, at the foot of the bed. Uh, so then uh, after the sampling, we elude the filters to retrieve the viral particles, and then we proceed to their count uh, to have a concentration of the virus in each location. And so when you are testing this, you used a variety of different oxygen delivery devices. What, what, what exactly did you test? So for this part, we follow, like we followed, sorry, a suggestion from ICU physicians to make sure that we are using what's relevant to real life situations, uh, which means what's being used in, in ICU. So we tested uh, invasive mechanical ventilation, uh, helmet ventilation with PEEP, uh, like with a PEEP valve, a BiPAP, non-rebreather face, face mask, uh, a high flow nasal oxygen and nasal prongs. And so what, what did you find uh, for those different devices? So one of the main findings is that the invasive ventilation and the helmet with PEEP valve led to the lowest viral concentration in six locations. Uh, the high flow nasal oxygen and nasal prongs led to the highest concentration also in the six locations. But in general, across all six locations, the concentration of the virus were highest at the mouth and above the mouth uh, as uh, opposed to at the end of the bed, which kind of makes sense because the further you go from the source, the less there is uh, aerosols. 
Yeah, I thought it was fascinating how uh, in your study that the nasal cannula was nearly as infectious as the high flow uh, nasal cannula. Do you have any thoughts about why that might be? Uh, yes, it's so it's true. So the concentration associated with the nasal prongs uh, at all six locations were found to be higher than non-rebreather face mask, for example. And to me, this suggests that the flow rate might not be the only responsible parameters in the dispersion of infectious particles. Other studies uh, have also demonstrated the same pattern, which highlight the importance of other factors like the uh, interfacial quality between the device and patients when considering uh, infectious particle dispersion in the patient environment. Now, you raise a good point about uh, those other studies uh, having somewhat similar findings. Uh, how, how would you relate your findings to the other studies that look at aerosolation that perhaps have found that high flow nasal cannula was uh, more aerosolizing than regular nasal cannula or that CPAP or BiPAP ended up having more aerosolization than what you had demonstrated. How would, how would you relate your findings to those studies? So it's true that, that the findings from this works, uh, like for example, suggest that viral concentration in the air around a patient that is treated with a, like with a helmet and a PEEP valve were very low. And it was also in agreement with other published literature on the subject. The previous studies also using exhaled smoke model have demonstrated like variable distances of, of dispersion using high flow nasal oxygen uh, or non-rebreather face mask, um, as also other studies using water and yeast. But the difference with our study is, as, as mentioned earlier, uh, using smoke, yeast, or even water models may not reflect the behavior of viral pathogen. So it was interesting in this work to add this infectivity uh, aspect uh, to these uh, dispersion models. Yeah, no, I think this is really fascinating. And, you know, it, it reveals one of the blind spots that a lot of us have had when we designed our infection protocols. You know, a lot of hospitals have adopted protocols that allow, you know, patients on the floor or, you know, only re relying on uh, nasal cannula. Uh, those patients sometimes are managed with the caregivers wearing just simple surgical masks. Uh, and they reserve the N95 or the PAPRs for patients who are on high flow nasal cannula or BiPAP. But based on your findings, it seems like this practice might not have been as safe as we initially thought. Yes, from a microbiology perspective, I do think that the safest option is to wear an N95 when caring for COVID-19 patient as, as uh, showcased by uh, this study. Right, yeah, no, I, I think we all agree, uh, you know, unfortunately due to uh, supply chain uh, limitations, we've ended up having to manage a lot of these patients with um, somewhat limited risks. I, I'm wondering though, you know, do you think your results indicate that we need to be more cautious with other respiratory illnesses since it seems like we could get aerosol spread from uh, nasal cannula from other respiratory viruses and maybe we should consider wearing an N95 mask when we see a patient on nasal cannula from a, a non-COVID respiratory viral infection like flu or rhinovirus? Yes. I. Absolutely. These findings are not specific to SARS-CoV-2. They may be applicable to any other respiratory viral infection that may affect the staff providing care. But again, it's going to be a matter of uh, uh, like a question of like, I guess, risk assessment and uh, how the uh, uh, like the supply chains and the availability of these masks. But if like I'm, I'm not like by far, I'm not uh, a specialist on these questions, but if, if I can speak only from 
And uh, infectious point of view, yes, it, it is absolutely true that these uh, results may be also applicable to other respiratory viruses. Yeah, you know, speaking of um, availability of technology, helmet oxygenation, I think is less commonly used in a lot of US hospitals, but it seemed like, uh, especially in the, the Northern Italy pandemic, it was an essential tool for a lot of other countries, um, including usage outside the ICU. Based on your findings, do you think we should be using more helmet oxygenation since it seems to have such low transmissibility? Oh, yes, that's, uh, that's actually an, uh, an interesting question because the helmet uh, initially was not a part of the study. It was suggested by one of the reviewers. So it just happened that we had access uh, to a helmet here in Toronto. Uh, so we used it in, in like when we were doing our uh, like revision of the manuscript. So to answer your question, helmet seems to be extremely safe uh, compared to the others like respiratory therapies. My only concern is uh, from a practical point of view. Let's say like if you're claustrophobic, they might create a lot of extra stress. So like I'm not a physician, so I don't really know what is the feasibility and added value of starting to use this device here in North America. But I can only say from seeing it and in putting it in the head of the mannequin, it was, it, it, it gave me like a feelings of, uh, uh, like I don't know of stress, so I don't know from a practical point of view if that's if that's uh, if they will not create uh, extra stress on the patients. Well, I could probably almost guarantee as soon as we put one of those on a patient, their nose would start to itch and they wouldn't be able to scratch it. You know, one one question that I really would have liked to answer is um, what's the relative risk of transmission from let's say coughing or other aerosol generating procedures compared to oxygen, you know, these oxygen delivery devices or how infectious patients might be if they wear a mask over that nasal cannula. Uh, do you have any future plans on how you might adapt your model to answer that question or, or similar ones? Yes, these are all interesting questions. Uh, we have done some preliminary work comparing dispersion with masks and without masks. And like results of, of, of these experiments show that using a mask, like obviously we have lower concentrations of the virus, like especially at the mouth and near the mouth of the patients. We did not use any coughing or aerosol generating procedure. So this model could definitely be used to try and answer these questions. And there are uh, discussions about uh, trying to adapt uh, the model to, to try and, and answer questions, especially about aerosol generating procedures. Well, I think that's great, and I'm, I'm sure we'll all be very excited to uh, read uh, some of your future work with the, uh, the mask modeling as well. What are some of the other questions you and your group are investigating? Right now, we are working on so many different projects all related to COVID-19. Uh, studies not only related to uh, uh, aerosol, uh, like genera generated like in patients, like detecting SARS-CoV-2 uh, in a patient's room, but also studying the virus at the human-animal interface, we have project uh, using animal models to study transmission. Uh, we are also uh, tracking the variance of concern using genomics. So it's definitely an important and exciting time to be a microbiologist uh, working with SARS-CoV-2. So I'm, like, we're very uh, fortunate to be able to do that and to answer some of uh, the pressing questions uh, during this pandemic. 
Yeah, no, that, that's great. There's some absolutely stellar work coming out of Toronto uh, and you and your group uh, should be very proud. This, is, uh, this has been a very useful study, I think, not just for the readers of AJRCCM, but also for uh, the general public when it, when it comes to realization about how potentially transmissible or dangerous some of these uh, devices can be. I think this concludes our Out of the Blue podcast. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Mbresh, for joining us in a great discussion about viral dispersion from auction delivery devices. And although it seems like this pandemic is winding down, uh, research like this is key not only just for this pandemic, but also for designing guidelines for future infections. Thank you, uh, Dr. Buresh. Thank you so much for having me. This is Michael Lanspa for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Thank you.